My name is Linda Rose Winters, and it's Rose Winters. That's the last name. It's not Linda Rose. <laughs> I want to clarify that. I am the director of diversity, equity, inclusion programs, K through 12. What skills will students need to be prepared for an increasingly complex future? As technology continues to shape our society and our structures of communication, how should education respond? And can places of privilege foster equity and inclusivity within and beyond their communities? My name is Tristan friedberg Radman. This is Learned. On Learned, we're looking beyond test scores and college acceptance rates to understand how education can shape the future of our society and what kind of teaching we need to bring us there. Our guest today is Linda Rose Winters. Linda, as you heard, is Oakwood's Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. She has been instrumental in changing Oakwood's approach to its diversity programs. Linda, Ivan, and I spent a morning talking about Oakwood's history, progress, and challenges with DEI. Yes, you guessed it. That's an acronym for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I actually started in 2001 working quarter-time in the admission office. Did that for a year, went to half-time, became a full-time person in 2000. I think it's three or four. So I've been here for a lot longer than I sometimes realize. I feel like we initially operated sort of superficially, you know, and then realizing that if we have this vision of wanting to be a more diverse and inclusive and equitable community, that it's complicated and messy and that it can't just be the sole focus or ownership of one individual or even one, one office. You know, when we think of ourselves as a college preparatory school, yes, we have college counselors and they're kind of guiding the process, but everyone here is, is supporting our students to be college ready, right? So I see similarly, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion at Oakwood, it can't just be the, you know, the sole focus of one individual and that it really had to be ingrained and owned by others in the community. That includes like key admin, the head of the school, every department, you know, support departments, even like the business office. We all have to have this lens of holding up our statement of philosophy and really having a deep understanding of what do we mean when we want Oakwood to be a diverse, equitable, and inclusive community. I certainly know my own relationship to this work changed tremendously in college and in the years afterwards. And it wasn't until reflecting back on it that I started to think about the way those seeds were sown at Oakwood, which is a credit to the program, certainly. And also, I imagine, something that makes it hard to measure how far we're moving as a school. One of the measurements I do use is often our African-American students or Black students, particularly the girls, will come in and they'll have their natural hair when they get here. And then during the, let's say they enter seventh grade, during the process, particularly in middle school, you start to see them relaxing their hair. It may seem silly, but it's significant. And then by the time they graduate, at graduation, they have their full natural hair back. And I feel like that really demonstrates this identity development and tension that they've gone through, arriving in this predominantly white institution trying to fit in, particularly in those middle school years, all you want to do is right be part of the, of the group, of the crowd, and then realizing or actualizing themselves as they graduate. I don't know. I always I love to see that happen. And something that happens with the recognition of difference is also an understanding of self, because once you start to make those connections, it becomes really clear who you are and the role that you've played in society and that 
people before you have played in society. Absolutely. And I think it makes sense that, I mean, developmentally, it makes sense that kids would sort of, these things would start to sort of click and connect in college, right? I also think the climate for talking about social justice and diversity and inclusion has changed drastically in, at least by my measure, the last decade, certainly with online discourse. Absolutely. And that, I imagine, creates a unique tension for teens and lower schoolers today. You bring up a point, like, how can you not address it? So, you know, when parents push back and say, why are we talking about race? Or some of our students push back and say, why are we doing this? My parents voted for Obama. You know, we live in Los Angeles. It's a very diverse city. Those are exact, and those are exact quotes. I'm not kidding. I I hear that all the time. It's infuriating. It is infuriating. And how do you engage particularly younger white students without triggering a sense of white fragility or white guilt? That's a huge challenge at Oakwood and also in any larger educational context. I deeply value the messiness of things. You know, sometimes the best things come out of sort of the chaos of it. And I think that is something that we need to ready our students for and develop this sort of this racial resiliency so that you're not falling apart when somebody identifies you as a white person. You know, that that isn't something that triggers something in you, that that shame isn't attached to that. So I feel like we really have to do a much better job at, first of all, holding up white role models, white activist role models that have been in, in existence forever. Talk about those folks, you know, more than we talk about Bull Connor, talk about the folks who really supported the civil rights movement and other movements, and also help students understand what white supremacy is. You know, I think we talk, we always talk about things in, in the extremes. We talk about black and white, we talk about the, you know, the, the wealthy and the poor. We we ignore all that, all the gradations in between there. And so you say white supremacy, students immediately think of hoods, right? Hoods and, and flames. The truth is, America is a white supremacist country. I mean, even that, as I say that, I think we have to rewrite, you know, and I, R-I-G-H-T, history, you know? And we have to start much younger so that we are really preparing, as I said, and readying our students and ourselves to have these conversations in ways in which they are productive and effective, and understanding that there are going to be mis- misunderstandings. It's going to be messy. I'm going to you know, say the wrong thing. We're going to say the wrong things. But we're in this together and with the intention of, if not resolving the issues, I don't even know if we'll ever get there, but certainly having a better understanding of how the system has been set up to allow certain folks to have more power than others. I mean, let's just start there. Completely. Yeah, there's so many threads there that I want to pick up on. Okay, because uh, you have yeah. to like connect me to them because now I don't, <laughs> even, yeah. don't even know what I said. Linearity is a fraud anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't believe in it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, particularly when you're doing this kind of work, how could you? Yeah. I mean, it, it takes that kind of thinking to be able to start to undo the deeply historicized and written by dominant cultures narratives that get instituted. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on that you were talking about is understanding white supremacy in 2019, because I think it gets really challenging, particularly we see on the news, we see far-right groups that actively spew hate speech. And I think it can be really easy for liberal white people to say, that's not me. White supremacy is not me. I'm curious how, particularly at Oakwood, where you encounter folks who may be still living in the fantasy of a post-racial Obama presidency, 
how you begin to unravel that and break down that distinction. It's hard, um, as you can imagine. And I feel like presenting the facts is really important, you know. And I think that's where we, we can provide students with the opportunities to make connections to what's happening today. I think one of the challenges is how do we make it happen um, more consistently and more globally within our community? So what are they doing in science? What are they doing in math? And that we don't just attach those opportunities, those educational, enlightening opportunities to the humanities. But I certainly think that there's a way in which we can have interwoven into an Oakwood education, including every single discipline that this lens of racial literacy can be applied to everything they're learning. Because no discipline is exempt from structural inequity. And that's where the diversity piece, you know, that, that really speaks to, it's not just about diversity, that it's about the ways in which you create spaces and opportunities for interaction and authentic interaction. And what are you valuing? Are you just valuing the, you know, the numbers of the differences coming in? Or are you really valuing the differences? I would love to talk about a different part of people's education around race, which is the internet. So I think there's like, there, that's, my face is probably like, whoa, that's a big one yeah. in there. And like, it's so multifaceted, right? Because as you said that, like, you know, this flash of Mark Zuckerberg came into my head. <laughs> and then I think of these young white boys, adolescent boys, who are gaming and how you know, certain factions of the internet are using that almost by osmosis. I mean, I don't want to say it's their values, but sort of developing this idea that they are being marginalized and they are being discriminated against and it's the loss of power of white people. And I know that's happening. This very subtle, nuanced, but very intentional way in which to indoctrinate these young white boys. Yeah, and I think something that we see on a societal level, particularly with white boyhood, is that for structural reasons, likely having more to do with capitalism, those benefits are no longer being passed down to another generation and people are freaking out. Freaking out. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Freaking out. Completely. There's a the crisis in that identity group around what kind of inheritance they should expect. And I think it's connected to, you know, their manhood. Just think of all the things that are being presented to white men these days in terms of really disrupting this notion of, of white male privilege, right? I'm sitting here and I'm certainly not feeling sorry for white men, but I understand, you know, I can understand this loss of power. I tell my students, I, I point to a desk and I say, okay, I'm going to tell you this is, from now on, this is a chair. And this thing that you're sitting on, that's a desk. And something else that metaphor gets at is that we're talking about shifts in language and how we talk about things in the way that simply the names we give things actually really influence the way we act and perceive the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. We societally have to pick up the slack and say, it's true. All of this is true. You may be a very nice person. You may have voted for Obama. What happens if that's not enough? That's something that as a 26-year-old, I think generationally that consciousness I'm seeing a shift in, which is exciting. We really do honor intellectual capacity here. And I think that's true of most educational institutions, right? That's what they're all about. That's also part of history that we need to dismantle, too. That, you know, Brene Brown says that stories are data with soul. Mm -hmm. And we have to, I believe, mm -hmm. 
as an educator recognize that my anecdotal experience, you know, is as significant as the history book that you pick up. And going back to my story, your story, our stories are attached to history, and there's no reason why that can't be part of the educational experience. And that may be more important than the other stuff. Just maybe that may be more important than knowing the year in which things happened or knowing that equation. You know, the social sciences, they shift all the time. These things shift all the time. So we are bobbing and weaving and adjusting and recalibrating all the time. Those are really, really important hard skills. And if we enabled every single one of our students to walk out of this institution having those skills, really having those skills, that would be amazing. And to me, that's much more important than knowing geometry. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. And what I'm hearing too, and this may be a, a point to start to wind things down, is that the language of work and labor seeps into all of this. Particularly in online social justice discourse, there's a lot of conversations about whose job it is, whose responsibility it is to take on the work of educating someone. That's a huge question. And one of the things that this conversation has gotten me excited for is the prospect of Oakwood building a community where that responsibility is deeply spread out, where it's not on a couple people to educate everyone else, where that can be picked up and wherever someone feels an ability to pitch in, they're able to recognize an imbalance in a room and do the soft work of correcting it. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my name is Ivan Johnson, and I am the director of co-curricular programs here at Oakwood. I'm curious about the idea of privilege. And we've talked a lot about the privilege of majority culture, especially in an independent school like Oakwood. How do you begin to give up that privilege? So uh, like you've talked about, sort of like shifting of this of this power and people feeling the loss but instead of reacting to it how do i become active in giving up that privilege i mean i think about so how much is enough if someone else has advantages that you already have does it do you lose your advantage if you already have privilege as part of a dominant culture, wherever that may be, if I then have those privileges, do you lose yours? I don't know if that's like answering your question. No, I mean, I think it's an interesting point, but I wonder, is there a breaking point where we do have to ask people to push beyond that? Like, I feel like what you're asking me as a privileged white male to do is accept but is there a point in order to really move to a place of equality where I do have to give up privileges that will feel impactful or hurtful or hard? I do think there's a point at which people in the dominant culture, and that is white males, are going to have to accept that things are going to look different. I mean, it's, it's, I'm grappling because I feel like, what will you lose? You'll have to accept that you're going to lose some power. You are. There right. is going to be a place, a point where, yes, it's going to look very, very different. I mean, that's the pushback, right? That's why there's pushback. 
Because it's been that way for hundreds of years. And it's not just me, it's my kids. It's like, and my grandkids. And losing that power that I imagined I would pass on to them. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there will be a day of reckoning at some point. I'm sure I'm not responding in any way that's hopeful. Oh, I think it's okay to sort of talk about how difficult. And it is difficult and messy, and there's always going to be pushback. Yeah. Always. You know, I think, and I think we also have to sort of grapple with this, like, this exceptionalism. You know, we had this one miraculous black president. We have this one head of school who identifies as a person of color. You know, it has to not just be that lone individual who's the exception from all the other bad folks. I think that's when the tension you're talking about or this acceptance or the real loss, because that's when things will really shift, when it's not just the tokenized one person, when, I don't know, when the board looks very differently than it does, you know, when they're not just one or two people of color on the board, but when the board is 50% people of color or 30% people of color, you know? Um, do you have any more things that you want to hit? go into yeah. <laughs> another 30 minutes. So I, I, think, yeah, I think I'm cool. Linda, thank you so much for talking thank with you. us. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, I hope I made sense. Definitely. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Learn is supported by Oakwood School, a K-12 independent school in Los Angeles, California. Today's episode was produced by me, Tristan Friedberg-Rodman. I graduated from Oakwood in 2011. My co-producers are Ivan Johnson, Oakwood's Director of Co-Curricular Programs, and Christy Guevara, Oakwood's Director of Alumni Relations. Original music courtesy of John Boyd, class of 1999. Additional score and sound design, as well as the intro music, are by Ivan Johnson. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on and hit subscribe. Our homepage is at anchor.fm slash learned. In our next episode, Ivan and Christy will be talking to Ned Wingreen, class of 1980. Ned teaches at Princeton and has some really eye-opening thoughts on failure through the lens of molecular biology. Until then, this is Learned. I'll ask you, I'll ask you one final question, which is... Am I remembering correctly that you have a vanity plate that says Rose Pug? Is that you? That's me. <laughs> Can yeah. you tell me the story of that? Sure. So um, I'm a pugophile. I love pugs. <laughs> um, and Rose is part of my last name. And Rose Bud from Citizen Kane. So I'm Rose Pug. <laughs> That's hilarious that you remember that. Yeah. yeah. I say I can never rob a bank, right? Because oh, I can't be the getaway car because I'd definitely be that's spotted. That's the only reason. Why. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the only reason why. I thought about robbing yeah. a bank, but that's why I can't do it. Amazing. My well, vanity place.